You are listening to the Follow series on 1 Peter from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. 1 Peter is a letter written to Christians struggling to follow after Jesus in a world in which they increasingly see themselves as strangers. It is both instruction how and an encouragement to live in the world in relationships, vocations, communities, and the church out of an identity formed by the transforming and perfect work of Jesus Christ. It's a benefit because we'd rather not deal with some of these things. And the last three weeks have really featured that, haven't they? The reason is, is because the last three weeks have all dealt with the issue of authority. And now when I say authority, uh, most of us begin to get that sick feeling, right? In our guts, or perhaps that headache that comes right behind your eye. Uh, really, we have to go here right now. The reality is we don't like authority. And because of our cultural moment, the, the moment in which we live, we have this subconscious thought that authority is a threat to us. Whether that authority be governmental, be ecclesial, have to do with the church, whether it has to do with parental authority, or it has to do with, with any kind of authority structures. We think it's a threat to us. And that freedom, true freedom, means being able to do whatever we want, whenever we want. But the Bible has a different vision for what it means to be free. Because the Bible, um, the Bible teaches something that our culture doesn't, it's not an assumption our culture shares, namely that you and I were created by an absolute person. What I mean by that is that if you're created by someone who's absolute, that means they have all power and all authority, and if they're a person, that means they give things value, right? Which means that you and I were created with a design, with an intent. And if that is the case, then we aren't free to do whatever we want because some things will violate that design. In other words, fish don't breathe air, cars don't run on water, and humans don't flourish apart from the way defined by our freedom. And that means that things like boundaries and authorities have been established by God not to ruin us, but to protect us. Right? Psalm 16 says that the, you have made the boundary lines fall for me in pleasant places. Most of us are like, how is that even possible? Boundary lines don't. That's not pleasant at all. That tells me no. And the psalmist is saying exactly, I need them. Boundaries are good for us. We saw that two weeks ago with government. We saw it last week, and now we look at how this plays in emeritus. Now, here's the thing, though. Ultimately, the argument here has been, through all of these, that for the Christian... That authority, the authority of which we are, we are placing ourselves under, is not purely vested in that institution or those people, but it comes from God. And so as we submit to that authority, in a sense, we are submitting to Him. Okay? So this morning, as we're looking at this, we're going to look at this in two ways. All right, our passage this morning. We're going to look at uh, what it means to follow as a wife. What it means to follow as a husband. Following as a wife, following as a husband. Ready? Now, as we get into this, I do want to say this is not an exhaustive treatment, right? It's been weeks on this. I'm trying to cover husbands and wives in one sermon. Because I'm going to skip over a lot of a lot of questions you probably still have. Alright? Uh, feel free to like let's ask questions, we can work 
but just understand that for me. Okay? Alright. Let's start by looking at Peter's call to likewise follow as a wife. Look down at verses 1 and 2. He says this, Likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands. Alright, I'll stop there, because let's be honest. Three responses going on right now. Some of us are bristling, okay? Um, others of us are kind of holding our breath. Congratulations, you're about to say. And it's so much like, yeah. Get your feminists. You know what I mean? Like, that, that's what's going on in our country, okay? I want everybody to take a breath. Alright. Let me help us understand what's being said and what isn't being said. The overall thrust of what Peter's about to say would not have been controversial in the first century. And we're going to get to why he actually has to say it in a minute. But this would not have been controversial because it was simply assumed that wives did what their husbands said. According to a historian, Plutarch, right? He was an early Roman historian. That wives in Roman marriages. You've got to remember, Peter speaking in the, in the Roman world of Asia Minor, wives of Roman marriages were not to have their own friends or worship their own gods. They hung out with their, their hubby's friends and maybe his friends' wives, but that they didn't have their own friends. They, they weren't allowed. It was it seemed um, uncouth, not right, disrespectful. And, and they, of course, no matter what faith perhaps they were brought up in, whether they came from this city or that city that worshipped, uh, you know, Zeus or Apollo or whoever, right, the Romans, so Jupiter, uh, I can't remember what Apollo's called, but in the Roman system, but, uh, but you, you're coming to his city, right, so you're going to worship his gods. That's the way this works. But what was controversial was this. First and foremost, Peter is instructing wives. Now, we miss that, we shouldn't. Because what Peter is not doing is he's not instructing the husbands to get their wives to do X, Y, or Z. He's instructing wives as if they're someone who should be listening and being taught, number one. Number two, he's... Okay, this is doing a couple things. First and foremost, it's implying that Peter's letter, because remember, it's not Peter standing up and saying this, he's sending a letter. He's implying that Peter's letter has authority that supersedes her husbands. In the Roman world, that's crazy. That's crazy. But Peter is more than implying. He's giving wives instruction apart from their husbands. Okay? In other words, the, the authority of the husband is not somehow absolute. It must be below the authority of the Lord himself. Okay? Secondly, in Peter speaking and instructing wives, what he's doing is giving the wife a personhood distinct from her husband. Now, we take that for granted, that that's somehow, well, dumb. Like, our, this is the way things work. Not in the ancient world. In the ancient world, if you were a woman, you had, you had no personhood distinct from some man who was in authority over you, either a father or a husband. Your dad's dead, and you don't have a husband. Uh, you, you're not really worth the time. You probably get by by selling yourself, honestly. Or as a slave in some form or another. Okay? But in the ancient world, as in many places in the modern world, women were not seen as full persons. And this is why first century Roman culture would do things like, um, if you were a, a first century Roman family, and you, you had a baby girl, you probably didn't want her. 
Now, of course, they have ultrasound, right? So they couldn't tell that in utero. So when she was born, what they would do is they just go leave her on a trash can. No big deal. Just a girl. That is why they would do that, because women weren't really full persons. And it's also why certain cultures today abort babies because of their gender. And if we believe differently here in the West, and I think that's a big hit, honestly, because you could really argue that because of our rampant objectification and commodification of women in pornography and sex industry, we believe no different than these folks. But if we do believe differently, it's not because of some kind of uh, modern liberal sophistication, but because Christianity declared something radically different 2,000 years ago, that women are persons made in God's image. And that is what Peter's words, in literally saying, likewise wives, would have done. For some who were perhaps visiting with that congregation the day that that was read, that no experience in Christianity, they would have thought that was crazy. Certainly uncivilized. Okay, but that doesn't really deal with the question all of us are asking, right? What does it mean to be subject? Or what does it mean, because uh, the, the original actually says to submit yourself, okay? Now, what we normally think is some kind of subservience, right? Some form of domination. That's really because more because of our cultural noise and because any of us have actually learned what the scriptures say. But because of our cultural noise, that, that obviously is what it, what it must mean, right? Now, let's be honest, this is unpopular. Some because of misunderstanding and some because of abuse. But we still need to hear it. The Bible teaches that humanity was created completely equal in personhood. Completely equal in personhood, right? We just got done talking about that. That's what Peter is doing, just in instructing wives in the first place. That men and women are created completely equal in personhood, but each gender was designed to fulfill a particular function. Men designed to move out into the world, offering our strength for its flourishing, bringing order out of chaos in that way. And women opening themselves, receiving the world and nourishing and bringing order out of chaos through relationship. Both are entirely essential, and neither is more important than the other. Within a marriage, there are functions similarly. The, the husband moves out and initiates, the wife receives and nourishes. It's like a dance, right? One leads, the other responds. You can have two leaders in a dance. All is not going to go well, right? You can't have two leaders in a dance. One has to leave, one has to respond. But both are equal and necessary. Some dude just leading without someone responding gets real goofy. To submit them, in, to, to, to submit yourself scripturally in the New Testament, is to place your life in the hands of another. It's to place your life in the hands of another. It's to entrust your care into the hands of another person. It is to trust in the care and action of a husband for your flourishing, even if you don't necessarily agree. Now, interestingly, saying that, uh, Peter does not base his argument for why this should be the case with the character of the husband. Right? Did you notice that? Look down at the end of verse 1. It says, so that even if some don't obey the word, they might be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. In other words, Peter is saying, Christian husband, non-Christian husband. Don't matter. Track it with me? Christian husband, non-Christian husband, don't matter. Okay? And that, in fact, the respectful actions of the wife may, in fact, endear the husband to the faith. Because here's the reality. In the first century, um, the Christian church had a lot more women, in many ways, than it did men. 
Uh, and some of that is because certainly uh, women were being converted, but also, remember what I said about how Romans like to leave babies on trash heaps? Christians didn't think that was a real good idea. So they went and adopted them. So they're like, that little baby's in the image of God. And so they would bring her into their home, they would raise her, you know what I mean? A lot more eligible women in the church than in the culture. And so you had a lot of Christians who were, who, a lot of Christians married in, in non-Christian circles. Like there were, you had mixed marriages in that sense. Okay, religiously mixed marriages. And so, Peter is saying, look, Christianism and non-Christianism, doesn't matter. The point is, is that if your husband is not a Christian, you may in fact be endeared to the faith because of the way in which you're acting. Now let's keep going, because this, this next section, this section seems to join with the previous business. Peter goes on from talking about submission to talking about getting all pretty. Um, now, look at verses 36. Some of us have taken this to mean, and some of the traditions from which we've come have taken this to mean, that what this absolutely means, that women cannot get all balled up, cannot, cannot make their hair nice, certainly don't braid anything, okay? And don't wear any jewelry. Um, but to do that is to take this section both out of its cultural context and the context of the passage, all right? Now listen close. Because Peter has just talked about husbands who don't believe. That's very important. Because husbands who don't believe aren't going to church with their wives. Okay? Now I want you to remember that the church, the church back in the first century was not done in, in buildings like this. The church was done in other people's homes. So I want you to imagine a scenario in which you've got a uh, some dude you know, let's call him um, Julius, okay? And his wife, uh, you, you see Julius's wife one day come out of her house and she is balled up. And she looked, she is dressed to nines. She, Julius is anywhere near her. Where's Julius? I don't know where Julius is. She's not there. And she's walking and she's like, oh, see where she's headed. And you see her go into some other dude's house. Dolled up, dressed to the nines, and then all these other people start going into you. She's going in without her husband. And then you realize one of them is one of those Christian people. They do secret things. Like this love feast. I don't know what that is. It sounds sketchy though, and she is dolled up. You get the picture? You get what would go through your head? I think some of you do. Some of you are like, I'm not, I don't get it. I'm sorry, you are. God bless your heart. You are so. But the rest of you get it, alright? So here's the thing. How would it look to the world and to, and to others in the community? Like, and in a sense, how would they view that husband? Not just necessarily the wife. How would they view the husband? They would view him as, uh, in, in a disrespectful way. He obviously can't uh, keep tabs on his wife. She's, she's going off on her own and obviously doing sketchy things in other people's houses. Okay? Because you see, women in the first century who went out all dolled up by themselves were probably one of two classes of people. They were either courtesans or prostitutes. Peter's saying, you probably don't want to go out like that out of respect for your husband. Okay? Well, that brings us to the stuff about Sarah. Look at verses 5 and 6. Okay? Peter says, this is not holy women who hoped in God just to adore themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham and calling him Lord. Now, some of you left right now, because you're like, hey, no way I'm calling that dude Lord. I know, right? Uh, yeah, I know. I know you're going to too. I wouldn't But this, this is the point, okay? 
Let me explain this whole thing before you chuck it. Um, this is a cultural expression, much like sir. What it simply means is that Sarah was culturally respectful to her husband. Not that she was like bowing and acting like she was a slave. There are different cultural ways of expressing respect and deference. Peter simply talked about Sarah's way, but perhaps in ours it's not like that. Perhaps it's more like, you know, when you and your girlfriends get together and they start doing the husband bashing thing. You just don't join in. Why? Do you respect your husband? Is he perfect? No. Lord, he's not perfect. Give me respect. Or, you're not going to talk about your husband like he's one of the children. Man, that's a big one for me. Don't talk about your husband like one of your kids. He's not one of your children. I don't care how he is. He's not one of your kids. Now, that leads us to the end of verse 6. This is really important, so stay with me. And Peter says, and, if you, and you are her children. If you do good, you do not fear anything that is frightening. All right. Is he talking? Why would he have to mention being afraid of frightening things? Basically this. Submission is terrifying. It is terrifying. Placing your life in the hands of another person, especially someone you know, that dude is jacked up. You know he's flawed. There's nothing. He's an okay guy, but gets things, he doesn't plan well, you know, like he's, can't even get his socks in the laundry hamper, and I'm supposed to put my life in his hands. It's terrifying. And if you were a wife you're dead, you know it's to be true. And look, even Peter's example shows it. What's the example he uses? Sarah and Abraham. I love this, because this is, this is what sets the Bible apart from any other religious text, Okay? Study other religious texts, and what you're going to find is that they idealize their heroes. There is nothing ideal about Abraham. Abraham and Sarah, Abraham's a great husband, right? That's why when he felt afraid for his wife, he's like, hey, Sarah, um, look, you look fine. And if that dude thinks that you're my wife, he's going to kill me, and he's going to take me. So here's what we're going to do you're going to be my sister. And what happens? Pharaoh goes, Oh, that's your sister. She should come with me into my bedroom. And Abraham's like, Okay. As long as I'm not dead, we're okay. That's a great guy, right? Woo! That's a man you want to trust with your life. No. No. He is insanely flawed. Insanely flawed. Listen, we were made to function in this perfect way where a wife could perfectly trust her husband. That her husband was always out for her good. That she could rest in that. Rest in his care. But that is not the case anymore, is it? This is because of sin. Because when we betrayed God and turned away from dependence on him, we became begging on ourselves. Right? Abraham's not thinking of Sarah. He's thinking of himself. Quite frankly, listen, I'm not thinking of my wife. I'm thinking of myself. And you husbands are too. And you wives are too. Okay? So what is it that can free a wife from fear of the very real likelihood that even a Christian spouse is going to fail? It is found in the first words of this chapter. The very first word of this chapter, likewise. If you look back at what exactly Peter's talking about without likewise, what is he thinking? Like, likewise, what does he mean? He's drawing back to verse 21 in chapter 2. Look down in the hand. Chapter 2, verse 21. What's it talking about? 
the example of Jesus Christ. Ladies, you will never be free to entrust yourself to someone who will fail you unless you believe that their failure ultimately cannot do anything to you. You will not be free to entrust your life into someone's hands who, who will not come through for you unless you are convinced that there is another who has already come through for you. In Jesus, God came to both answer for our betrayal of him and secure our deepest longings. Ladies, your longings cannot be satisfied by your husband. Okay, how good a husband is, how much he really does come through for you, it cannot be satisfied by him. The only one who can answer for any of that is Jesus. And this is what he did by giving himself for your sins to reconcile you to the one who you belong. Okay? You can be free to entrust yourself to a flawed man because you have already trusted in a perfect Lord Jesus. If not, you simply try to make him into a man worthy of trust. Both you and he will fail. Because he was never designed to be his own. Only God. Now, let me move on to husbands really quick. There's a lot more I can say there, but let me move on to husbands, okay? Look at the beginning of verse 7. Peter says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the leader best. Now, this verse has been privy to a ton of misunderstanding. A ton of misunderstanding. Okay? Many have thought that it means to be considerate since women are weak, which it doesn't say. Or that women aren't people since they're vessels, right? Or things, you can translate that word that's used there, which quite frankly means nothing since Peter's expression is kind of meaningless unless he's comparing it to another type of vessel, which would be the husband, right? Okay? So, Here's, here's the thing. Listen close. This, this verse only makes sense in light of the last few. First off, what the ESV translates, what I read, as live in an understanding way, literally means live according to knowledge. Okay? Live according to knowledge. What knowledge? What knowledge, then? That's the important thing. What makes the most sense is taking this as knowledge of what has just been said. Okay? Follow me. Because I don't want you to get lost. But if you get lost, this isn't going to make sense. Peter has just talked about women being afraid of entrusting themselves to broken men, which is a real fear. Don't be afraid of frightening things. Okay? That's what Peter said. Don't be afraid about entrusting your lives to broken men. And then he tells husbands to live understanding this and show them honor as a weaker vessel. Okay? No, stay with me. I don't think this means that women are physically weaker. Certainly, on average, that is probably true. Okay? But Let's not get out arm wrestling after the service to look like, prove it, you know. We don't need to do that. Nor does it mean that somehow women are like emotionally weaker, which is generally where we go, like, well they can't men right? the way I can. Yeah, okay. So you shut off from life and that makes it somehow stronger or better. No, that's not good. Okay. What it means is that in the context, wives can voluntarily place themselves in a position of weakness. They voluntarily place themselves in a position of weakness. Here's what I mean. Placing your life in the hands of another is scary because you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable. Husbands are called to live with their wives in such a way as to account for the fact that their wives have every reason to be afraid because they have placed themselves voluntarily in a vulnerable position before their husbands. Okay? Here's the reality. If men were designed to offer their strength to the world, 
we no longer do so. Because when sin enters, what it did is, it, it, it is, is that we turn into ourselves and we freeze. We're called to move out. We're made to move out because of sin. Now we just kind of sit back like, I don't know if that's going to go well for me. I don't think that's going to work, so I'm just not going to try. I'm going to freeze. We simply seek to protect ourselves because we all we care about is ourselves. And in doing this, we both sin against others and against God. And Peter's calling husbands to care for and honor their wives because they have placed themselves in a vulnerable position. Now, the wise of this kind of beginning for a very honest. Peter says, Do this since they are heirs with you the grace of life. Now, I cannot say enough about how radical this is for the person. We're going to come back, we're coming back to something we talked about before. Think with me. If the idea of a woman submitting to her husband was not radical in the first century, why did Peter have to say it? Why did he have to say it? That was just kind of normal. That was just the culture that's like, that's, that would be like, you know, um, that, that's like telling people, you know, you should really go drink water. Drinking something, some kind of fluid is good for you. So the Lord calls you to drink fluids. We don't have to do that. God doesn't have to, we get that, right? So why do we have to do this? I would suggest that the reason is because something about Christianity undercut the basis for the culture's practice. Namely, the idea that women are equal with men in person. Because Peter calls them heirs with you, husbands. Sharers, joint heirs, the two of you, partners, together. In other words, you guys are in the same boat they are. And this is what Paul means, by the way, in Galatians 3.28. He doesn't mean that gender distinctions have been removed. That's silly. Because that's true that he's arguing with himself in various places in his own life. Okay? What it means, what he means in Galatians 3.28 is that those distinctions, along with social distinctions like slavery and things like that, and racial distinctions, don't make one lesser in the eyes of God. Husbands are then called to move into the world of their wives, not just because their wives have placed themselves in a position of vulnerability for submission, but because they are equally regarded by God. Listen to me. This is important. Some of you guys need to hear this. Your wives, husbands, are not called to submit to you because there is something great about you that they should submit to. There's nothing ontologically greater about you that says it is right and it is appropriate. Not at all. Not at all. It is voluntary. Wives don't submit to their husbands because they are ontologically inferior. And husbands aren't called to lead because they are better at it. Both are choices made out of love for the other. But if sin has frozen men and made us as husbands passive and unwilling to risk, what is it that will get us moving again and to answer this call that Peter has made? And I should say, when, when we talk about this call, understand that we're talking about in a relationship with marriage. Remember, when Peter says for, for wives to submit, he doesn't say, wives submit yourselves to men. That's not what he says. Submit to your own husbands, not women to men in general. Wives to their own husbands. Husbands, lead, not feel like you are the one leading all these women in general. Lead your wives, okay? Live with them in, a, in according to knowledge. What is it that's going to get us moving again 
the answer, like it was for wives, is the gospel. Listen. It has to be the gospel. Because I just give you a do better message, which is frankly is really tempting to do. It's really tempting to do. Because I can just give you a do better message, give you a bunch of rules. But one of the great things, and Karen Joes, who's a he's a New Testament scholar, uh, her quote is in one of her meditations, very clearly says, like, Peter is very wise. Like, I don't know if you noticed, there's not a ton of like specific application that Peter gives here. Why? Because that looks a lot different. How this plays out is going to look different. Marriage to marriage, culture to culture. Okay. Now I can give you a few better message than a bunch of rules. So that would be a lot easier for me. But the reality is that we, many of us, may make an attempt, but that attempt isn't going to last. For some of us, it won't even last until we get out the door here. The rest of us, it may last like a day or two. Some of you are like Iron Man, and it'll last a week. Wow, that dude kept it up for a week. It's awesome. Okay, but it's not going to last because the root of why we don't do better was never addressed. Husbands freeze because we somehow understand intuitively the weight of what is being asked of us. I just talked about how terrifying it is to submit. I want you to think about how terrifying it is to be responsible before God. Or if you have a family, like kids, too, multiple other people. That, and remember, when I say responsible, like, biblical authority doesn't mean privilege. Right? Authority in, in, in the New Testament, in Scripture as a whole, does not mean privilege. It means responsibility and accountability. And that means husbands will be held accountable by God for their families. And this is why Peter mentions our prayers being here. Listen to me. Your wives do not exist to serve you. I know we all think that, right? That their job is to kind of keep the house looking nice and keep my life going so I can go get my kicks at work with my buddies. I can be successful and I don't have to worry about what's going on at home. That is a lie from a bit of hell. They do not exist to keep everything nice and tidy and then be a trophy for you when you get home. If you think you can be spiritual, but your wife isn't treated with honor, but instead it's your sloppy seconds from work, from your friends, you are deluded. Your prayers are hindered and you don't even know. The New Testament is clear that leadership in marriage is to be marked by service, by giving yourself to the flourishing of your bride, not using her or your position to see your desires met. But we become obsessed with that. We become completely engrossed by that and seeing our needs and desires met because sin has turned us in on ourselves, which means that if we are going to be free to be the husband that God has called us to be, someone's got to answer our sin problem. Someone's got to deal with that. And that is where Jesus comes into play. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus did not come to make you a better husband. Okay? Jesus is not your better husband, though. Like, okay, well, I can take that. And that, that. That would make no sense. Jesus came and lived the perfect life we can Died the sinner's death we deserve to reconcile us with God. But if we are reconciled, then we will be free to be the kind of husband that God intended. We won't be obsessed with getting our needs met, because the deepest of our needs, being reconciled with the God we were made for, has been met in Him. And not only has it been provided for us, but it can't be taken away from us. And we won't be intent on demanding that everyone make us look good. Because God has accepted us in Christ as a broken sinner of God. Because Jesus liked that in our church. 
In other words, we can step out and lead out of love for our bride because we know that the worst that can happen is failure. And failure says nothing about us. When we place our faith in Jesus, what is most true of us is declared by God saying that we are accepted in love and forgiven in Him. Listen, guys, this vision for marriage, and even though I didn't go into details in my, my mind, is, uh, I would imagine that y'all can work out a lot of the details and some of you don't like them, okay? This vision for marriage is not popular. It's not popular because it costs us. It costs. It costs security. It's risky for both parties. It costs us. It is not based on convenience. Well, these two people love each other, so they should be able to be together. It costs us. It's a covenant, not a convenience. But for those called to marriage, it is what we were made for. And we are most ourselves when we follow Jesus. Lord, for all that we are and all that we are not, we depend on your grace. So, Lord, for my friends here in this room who have not yet tasted that grace, we're still hoping that they can just do better. Just keep doing better. Just keep doing better. I pray that you bring them into themselves quickly so that they can see that our best is still independence from you. And so it is still not what we were made for. Will you help us all? Give us the grace and work in us that we might depend on you, trust in you, and seek your face. And Lord, for the marriages in return, I pray Jesus, that's all we ask in Christ's name.